If not, that's fine too. So, pardon me. So, trick question. Um, does anyone know who this is a picture of? And before you answer, it's not me or anyone related to me. You really thought that was me, Kevin? Oh, my dad. No, no, that's not me. That's not me and anybody related to me. Nobody knows? Okay, well, as I said, it's a trick question. And the only reason I know, this is uh, actually a picture of Bill Crawford. And that name probably doesn't mean anything to anybody. The only reason I know it is because I was stationed at the Air Force Academy where Mr. Crawford was a janitor in the early 1970s. So Bill Crawford was born in Pueblo, Colorado in 1918. And at the tender age of 25, Private William Crawford found himself with the 36th Infantry Division in Italy in the campaign to retake uh, Italy from the Nazis. Well, one day, his company got orders to take a hill near Alta Villa. And it was a strategic hill. The Germans were using it to shell American positions. And so, of course, the Army, that's what they do. They take hills, right? I was in the Air Force. We fly over hills and, and bomb them, <laughs> which to me seems like a much better thing to do. But anyway, I'm thankful for the Army. I'm not trying to diss the Army. Well, I am trying to diss the Army, but... Anyway, I didn't say anything about the Marines, which, where's Kent? Huh? <laughs> okay, I'm going to behave. And, uh... Anyway, his company got orders to take this hill near Alta Villa. So his platoon was in the lead, and they're, they're climbing up this uh, ravine, is what the Army called it. it was, Bill said it was more like a gully. <laughs> So they're climbing up this, this gully towards the crest of the hill, and about halfway up, they get pinned down by German machine gun fire. So the Germans had three machine gun nests that were firing down onto anybody that was trying to get up the hill. And so they sat there pinned down for a couple of minutes, and, and finally Bill said, well, something's gotta happen. We gotta do something. So he decides to army crawl up the hill, being as low as he could, until he got into position and he threw a grenade and took out the first gun. Well, his platoon mates caught up to him and they're like, yeah, that was great, that was great, but there's two more guns. And so he does it again and crawls and throws a grenade and takes out the second gun. Yeah, it's great, it's great, there's still one more gun. So he does it the third time and he crawls and throws a grenade and takes out the last gun. And his company was able to take the hill. Well, the Germans mounted a counteroffensive, uh, not surprisingly. And in that counteroffensive, Bill Crawford was captured. His unit thought he was dead. But he was submitted for and awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for what he did on that hill. And if you don't know what the Congressional Medal of Honor it's the highest award in the military. It's for, I'm going to mess up the term, but it's for conspicuous, conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in combat. I have no what idea what intrepidity means, but that's, what's on this, that's actually the first line of the citation. Conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity. So it's normally presented by the President of the United States. Well, the Army thinks Bill is dead, 
And so it's awarded posthumously and it's presented to his dad by a four-star general. Well, imagine the shock and the joy when in 1945, Bill is liberated by the Russians from a POW camp in Poland and repatriated to the United States. So, go to the next one. Uh, Bill Crawford stayed in the military until 1967, retiring as the rank of Master Sergeant. And he moved back to Colorado. Well, about four years after his retirement, I don't know if he got bored or what, he went to work at the Air Force Academy as a janitor. And so he's at the academy, he's working in the dorm, sweeping floors, taking out the trash, uh, just going about his, his duties. And the cadets are walking by this guy every single day having no idea who was in their midst. No idea that this is a Medal of Honor winner and what he did on that hill. Well, that all changed one day in 1976. And I'm going to have to read this because I'll mess it up. When Cadet James Moshgat, Moshgat is his name, he started reading a book about the ground campaign to liberate Italy. And he comes across the account of Private William Crawford. Well, he was gobsmacked because right there on the pages of that book was his janitor, the guy that had been cleaning up after him for five years. And he had no idea. So he grabs a book and he runs back to the, runs back to the dorm. And he says, look, look, this is our janitor. And all these guys are excited and they're like, no way, no way, this is a janitor. And so he takes the book to, to Bill and he shows him this picture and he says, is this you? And he says, Bill says, yep. That's me. And he goes back to sweeping the floors and taking out the trash. And these guys are like, wait, wait, wait. Tell us about the story. Why didn't you ever mention this? How come you don't wear the metal? How come you don't wear the lapel pin? How come we never knew about this? And this is what he said. He said, that was one day in my life, and it happened a long time ago. And he goes back to sweeping floors and taking out the trash. Well, as you can imagine, in a place like the Air Force Academy, news travels fast. And so it wasn't long before everybody knew who Bill Crawford was and what he had done on that hill in 1943. And he just continued going on about his business, doing what he was supposed to be doing. Um, That original group of cadets, they graduated and got their commissions and went on to serve the Air Force. And by the time they did, Bill Crawford was a beloved and integral member of the cadet wing. Uh, He was one of their own. And somehow it got out that he had never been presented his medal. And so the staff and the cadets at the time, they set out to correct what they considered an egregious wrong. Well, in 1984, President Ronald Reagan was scheduled to give the commencement address at the Air Force Academy. And they invited Bill Crawford to be their guest, the guest of the wing. And they had arranged for President Reagan to give him his medal of honor in front of the cadet wing that he had served so humbly for so many years. So Bill Crawford died in 2000 at the age of 81, and he was buried. He's buried in the Air Force Academy Chapel, the grounds of the chapel. He's the only non-Air Force enlisted member ever to have that honor. There hasn't been one since, wasn't before, and hasn't been one since. So Bill Crawford was a hero. He was rightly entitled to honor and respect, but he didn't demand it. He just went about doing the task at hand, quietly and humbly serving. I don't know if he was a Christian. I couldn't find anything about any kind of faith that he had, but he exemplified 
a life that most of us would say that's a life of humble service. I love that story. Uh, it's it's uh, urban. You think it's urban legend until you get to the academy, and they still tell that story at the academy of Mr. Crawford, the janitor who was a Medal of Honor winner. And I have tons of respect for what he did. But at the end of the day, what matters is what God says. And so we want to look at what God says humility is. Duh, David Mathis, he's a pastor at City's Church in Minneapolis. That's what I think is a pretty good definition. The entire definition, it's on your study sheet. It was a little technical, so I'm just going to give you the abbreviated, um, the Cliff Notes version of it. But this is what he says. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, humility is an attitude, is an attitude that acknowledges and obeys the one who is truly Lord and rightly views people as created by and accountable to God. I'm going to read that again. Humility is an attitude that acknowledges and obeys the one who is truly Lord and rightly views people as created by God, created by and accountable to God. Or put another way, humility means we understand we aren't God. We aren't God. We are creatures, not the creator. And as creatures, we have a duty and a responsibility to submit to and obey God in everything. We're not we're not the created, we're the creatures. We have a duty and a responsibility to obey God in everything. So as we go through Philippians 2, I hope, you can, I hope that's helpful to keep that in mind. If you want to open your Bible or an app, I'm going to, I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV. So this is Paul writing to the Philippian church from prison. Um, and he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That's worthy of an amen. It sure is. Okay, so C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And that's what Paul's trying to get at here. He says, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. We should be outwardly focused. We should be focused on others, not inwardly focused. Right? A lot of times we think humility is I denigrate myself or I downplay my abilities or I, don't, uh, I walk around what a worm of a Christian I am. Um, that's our version of humility, right? 
that's not actually what Paul is talking about. Paul doesn't say don't look out for your own interests. He says don't, he says, don't ever look out for your own interest. He says look out for the interests of others. And when there's a conflict, when there's a conflict between your interests and others, the other person's interest wins out. That's what Paul's talking about. Okay? That is a difficult, difficult thing to do. And so it's no surprise that Paul's going to use Jesus as an example of this. He's going to present Jesus as an example for us to follow because Jesus is the one who did this perfectly. And it's an example that we should emulate. So we're just going to step through this passage and then I'm going to give us a couple of things I hope that will help us live this out. So in verse Paul, in verse 5, verse Paul, let me get another, I had too much coffee this morning. If you, yeah, so, so little bunny trail, sorry. Um, we had our granddaughter Sage this weekend, and fantastic weekend, great, exhausting, okay? Um, it was wonderful, but I am so tired. Um, because she does not, she does not stop, and so. But it was great. It was great, and I, I didn't do a ton of the work. My wife and daughters did most of it, so, so I really have no excuse. Okay, in verse five, Paul says this: "Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." You know, sometimes I come to a passage like this where Jesus is the example that I'm supposed to follow, and in my mind, there's an immediate objection that springs up. Okay, and the objection goes something like this. Well, of course Jesus could do that, or of course Jesus could do this. He's God. If I was God, I could do that thing too, right? Well, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's going to cut my objection off at the knees, right? Paul's not going to allow me this objection. He's going to preempt it, because this is what he says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul makes it sound that as a Christian, you and I already possess this mindset. Well, how can that be? How can that be? And the answer is that we have the ability to have the same attitude because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. So it goes something like this. The Spirit knows the mind of Christ, we have the Spirit, and so in a sense, we have the mind of Christ. Okay? Paul's, Paul's going to flesh this out more clearly in 1 Corinthians, which is a fantastic passage, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. And he's explaining to the, the church in Corinth, and he's saying that people who don't have the Spirit, they're unable to discern spiritual things. Right? They, they lack that ability. They couldn't do it if they wanted to. They don't want to, but if they wanted to, they couldn't do it. Because spiritual things are discerned by the Spirit. And he says, but people who have the Spirit, people who have the Holy Spirit, they can discern anything. They're able to understand everything that is spiritually, uh, spiritually knowable. So, if you're a believer, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, which means we have everything we need in order to please God and do the things he's commanded us to do. 
And that includes living lives of humble obedience to him. Now, that doesn't mean at all that it's easy. I don't want to stand up here and say, oh, yeah, it's a cakewalk. What's wrong with you guys? Uh, What's wrong with us? It's not. It's not easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It won't be easy for us. But it is possible. It is possible to do. It's possible to live a life of humble obedience the same way Jesus did. And it's possible for everybody who has a spirit, not some select group of super saints. Um, Anybody in this room who's a Christian can do it. All right, in verse 6, Paul, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So Jesus did not consider, Jesus is in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now Jesus was, is, and always will be God. Right? That's Christianity 101. Amen. All right. Uh, That fact is testified about in numerous places in Scripture. A lot of those are, I'm going to cover just a few, but a lot of them are on your study sheet. So in Colossians 1.15, Paul is writing, and he's talking about Christ. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In verse 19 of Colossians 1, he says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In John chapter 10 and John chapter 17, Jesus himself explicitly, explicitly makes the claim to be God. It says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I and the Father are one. Okay? So there, there's no way to come to the scripture honestly without some prior uh, axe to grind and come away with any other belief than that Jesus is God. Right? Jesus is God. And that's what makes what Paul says next, he, it makes it so mind-blowing. And I think, you know, in studying through this passage, I don't know how many times I've read Philippians. I actually memorized part of Philippians. And, and you just kind of get, you just kind of get numb to it. You just kind of, just kind of gloss it over. And when you're studying it, it's just like you look at it and you're like, no, oh, what? That's, that's pretty amazing. So Paul's going to say something here that's just mind-blowing. He says in verse 7, Paul's going to say that instead of considering equality with God something to be grasped, Christ emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So ever since Christ's first coming, people have been trying to fully explain the incarnation. And honestly, nobody has ever come up with a completely satisfactory answer. Um, I think it's, honestly, I think it's just a mystery that we're never going to fully understand. And uh, maybe we will when we get to heaven. That should be one of the first questions we ask, right? Um, So I'm not going to try to explain the hypostatic union um, because we'd be here for a month or more, and you guys would be confused, and I wouldn't have told you anything. Um, the hypostatic union, if you don't know, is the theological term for God taking on humanity. Um, but this is the way I understand it, okay? Because at some point, you think, well, I can't stop being God, and your mind goes, Whoosh, you know, and it's like, well, he was a man, and your mind goes, Whoosh, 
And you're like, okay, how does that work? So when Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, this is how I understand this. It's that Jesus, who was God, was due all honor, glory, and respect as God. And when Paul says he emptied himself, he laid aside those rights and privileges that were due him. He laid aside the rights and privileges that were due, that were due him as God. Okay, and then he voluntarily submitted himself to the limitations of his creation. To the limitations of the creation so that he experienced all the pains, all the afflictions, all the temptations that you and I do. This is how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay? Again, this is a mystery. How, how did this work? I don't know. I don't know. But it's a fact. Jesus emptied himself, took on flesh, so that he could experience everything you and I experienced. Every temptation, every hurt, every, every pain that you and I experienced, he experienced. Paul says in verse 8, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. And it's interesting that Paul links Jesus' humility to his obedience unto death. Not necessarily to his emptying himself of his privilege. Right? So the humility part was being obedient unto death. All right, so you go back to our definition. What do we say humility was? Humility meant to submit to and obey God as Lord. And Jesus being obedient unto death was the, was the example of that. That's exactly what you see Jesus doing. You see him being obedient to the Father. He was God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to grasp. Instead, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. This is what John 14, 31 says. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's preparing them for his departure. He's getting ready to, to leave soon. And this is what he says. He tells them the evil one, meaning Satan, he says, Satan is coming. <laughs> I love this. But he says, he has no power over me. Right? He has no power over me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father I do as the Father commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. If you read in the Gospels, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times, right? He went back. Prayed three times. If there's any way for this to pass, let it be. But your will be done, not mine. Thy will be done, not mine. Jesus submitted fully and completely to the will of the Father for his life. And that, that's the type of humble obedience we're supposed to emulate. You know, in Jesus' case, God's will for him was to live a righteous life in fulfillment of the law, to be falsely accused, unjustly tried, executed in the worst possible way that there was at the time. It was humiliating, it was excruciatingly painful. 
And to do that is the perfect lamb who washed our sins away. And then to be resurrected and to sit at the right hand of the Father until the end of the ages. And then the scripture says one day he's going to come back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. Right? The dead in Christ are going to rise first and then if we're still here, we're going we're to take a ride also and we're going to be with him forever. Right? And that's going to be a great, great day. All right, verse 9. Because Jesus was obedient to death, Paul says, the Father exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul writes this in Philippians. This is what is so cool about the Bible, you guys. Okay? And, and why it has to be divine, because people couldn't have come up with it. People could not have come up with this. So Paul writes this in Philippians, and then we get, a, we get a, an account of John's vision in Revelation 4 and 5, which is exactly what Paul is talking about. Okay? This, is, this is what John says. And John is in the throne room of heaven, and there's anxiety because there's these scrolls that need to be opened, and nobody is found worthy to open them. And so John's upset. So who's going to open the scrolls? And one of the elders goes, bro, don't worry about that. Look. He says, and this is John's account. He says, then I looked and heard around the throne. And this is when Jesus, the lamb, lamb who was slain, opens the scrolls. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. So Paul writes it. Paul's, Paul says, this is what, Jesus, uh, what God did for Jesus because he was obedient, and then we get a picture of it in, in John, in the apocalypse. Okay? Guys, there's no way the Bible's not divinely inspired. Okay, so what are some applications? Right, because I've said we have the mind of Christ. We're supposed to be able to obey this, and the question is how. Right, I kind of already talked about one of them, and this is not on your handout. Um, is that my tinnitus? Because I hear ring. Okay, we're good. Okay, sorry, I'm not hearing voices. <laughs> so this is not on your handout. My apologies. Uh, by the time I realized it wasn't on the handout, it was too late to get it to Patty Ann. And so I just didn't even try. So anyway. Um, but the first and best way is, listen, because we have the Spirit is to ask Him, because we have the Holy Spirit is to ask Him to produce this in our life. Ask the Holy Spirit to produce this in our life. And listen, honestly, we have a part to play in choosing humility, but if, if the Spirit doesn't empower it, it's not going to happen. 
If the Holy Spirit doesn't act and give you the ability and give you the power and give you the desire to, to be humble, to choose humility, all you get is behavior modification. That's all you get. You don't get heart change, which is what God is after. You know, we can all gut out some behavior change for a while, right? But it doesn't last. It doesn't last. We revert back eventually. Um, And that's not what God is after. But ask the Holy Spirit to generate it in you. Ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to do it. Now, be forewarned. Be forewarned that when you pray this, you ought to be ready for a beautiful but excruciatingly painful experience. Okay? A beautiful but excruciatingly painful experience. All right, if you've ever experienced the sweet conviction of the Lord, you know what I'm talking about, and I'm sure we all have. All right, the next thing is, I said, the Holy Spirit has to empower it, but we have a choice. We have a choice. God's after our hearts, and he's after hearts that are so captured by his beauty, grace, and mercy that we willingly and joyfully acknowledge his lordship over us. And guys, that's the essence of Jesus' obedience, wasn't it? It was for love of the Father that he did what he did. It was for love of the Father that he went to the cross, that he obeyed to the point of death. God is so rich in mercy that every day we wake up, we get to have a choice. We get to choose. Every morning you wake up, God gives you another day on earth, you you have the ability to choose. You can choose to consider others more important than yourselves, to lay down your life for others, to be obedient to whatever call God has on our lives for that day, or we can choose not to. We can choose not to. I'm ashamed to say how many times I choose not to do that. Right? All right, but... There's a caveat to that, too, right? Um, That if we will not humble ourselves, that God in his mercy and his grace will step in and do it for us. Because that's what he's after. He's after our hearts. Probably one of the most dramatic examples of this, um, maybe after Jonah, but one of the most dramatic examples of this is Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 4 and 5, you get this story. So Nebuchadnezzar, he is the king of Babylon, which was the known world at that point. And Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he sees in his dream, he sees this giant tree. And the, the leaves of the tree and the branches of the tree, they reach up into heaven. And they shadow the whole earth. And there's fruit, enough fruit for everybody in the world to eat from this tree. And every creature on earth is sheltered under this tree. And then Nebuchadnezzar hears a voice, and a voice from heaven says, cut down the tree and chop off all its branches and bind the stump with a band of iron and bronze. Then the voice says, let his mind be changed from that of a man to that of an animal for seven periods of time. And so Nebuchadnezzar does what kings did back then. They call their wise men and say, what's up with this? And none of the wise men can figure it out. And so he calls Daniel and Daniel interprets a dream for him. And he says, you're the tree. 
Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. And here's what's going to happen. That you're going to be driven from your palace. You're going to be driven from your throne. And you're going to have the mind of an animal. And you're going to go live in the wilderness for a while. And you're going to eat grass like an animal. And you're going to drink dew. And you're going to have the mind of an animal for, for a period of time. Until you come to your senses and you acknowledge who God is. And then Daniel, this is, this is what's so funny about the story. Not funny, fascinating. Daniel says, I'd advise you to repent, king. And Nebuchadnezzar does. No, because he's just like us. Nebuchadnezzar is just like we are, right? And he doesn't. He's out on his balcony one day, and he's overlooking Babylon, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He's looking over the hanging gardens, and this is what he says. He says, is this not Babylon the great that I have built by my vast power to be a royal residence and to display my majestic glory? He finished his sentence, and his mind changed, and he was like a beast of the field. And God drove him out, and the scripture says that his nails grew till they were like claws, and the hair on his body grew until they were covered him like eagle's feathers. And then at some point, he comes back to his right mind, and he looks up into heaven, and he acknowledges God. His, he, and then when everything is restored, this is what he says. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able, this is the biggest understatement in the Bible. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way, right? That, that God is after humility. We have a choice, but if we won't do it, he will do it for us. And sometimes in dramatic fashion. Next, to be humble like Jesus is to obey all the way, no matter how difficult it gets. Now, we talked about the garden earlier, right? And Jesus was in the garden. He's sweating drops of blood. The, the capillaries in his body burst because of the anxiety. And it was the anxiety of being separated from God. But he continued on. He was obedient unto death. Now, Mike preached a couple of weeks ago, I think, you know, said so it's very unlikely that we're going to live, mar we're going to die a martyr's death. Very unlikely that anything like that is going to happen. But we live in a culture where it's getting increasingly hard to be a Christian. We live in a culture that is increasingly anti-Christian. And there's going to be difficulties. And the question is, are we going to be obedient the harder it gets? When things are hard, when we're maligned or we're persecuted, are we going to continue? All right, and the last application is that humility is costly but ultimately risk-free. Now, what do I mean by that? Because that sounds like a contradiction. So let me, let me try to explain. So Jesus, his, his obedience was extremely costly. Extremely costly. He was homeless, maligned, scorned, persecuted, unjustly condemned, beaten, crucified, and killed. And as I just said, he was the, probably the worst was that he was forsaken by God in a way that we will never understand. So an eternally perfect relationship was broken on the cross. This is what Isaiah 53 says about 
about Christ. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Okay, so it was extremely costly. But in a sense, it was risk-free. Because Jesus trusted himself to the judge of all the earth. The judge who always does right. He knew his life was in God's hands. He knew God was pleased with him. The scorn, beatings, and death couldn't snatch him out of God's hand. The worst the world could do was insignificant in comparison to the reward that awaited his faithful obedience, right? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how Hebrews puts it, chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, as seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I think a lot of times where we get tripped up is we don't take the long view. We take the short view. We think in the immediate, right now, well, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to be humble. I don't want to be a doormat. I don't want to be humble. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to be humble. I don't want to obey God. What if God calls me to do something really crazy hard? Right? Because we take the short view. We, we look we look five yards out instead of 100 yards out. This is, this is what Paul, I'm going I'm to close with this. This is what Paul says in Romans 8.18. Again, another, okay. Um, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Okay, Paul wrote this about persecution. Paul wrote this about uh, all the trials. If you look at 2 Corinthians, all the things that Paul went through, right? A night and a day in the sea, beaten. Anybody spend a night and a day in the sea? Anybody been beaten by robbers? No, none of that, right? And Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. God is altogether good, altogether gracious, altogether trustworthy. And we can follow Jesus in humble obedience Knowing the cost may be high, it may be high, it may cost everything, but the reward is worth it. The reward for obedience is greater. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read from, oh yeah, the band came.